Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. We all know that pornography affects the brain, but exactly how does it affect the brain? Well, I figured let's get a brain surgeon on the podcast and talk about that. My guest today is Dr. Don Hilton. And Dr. Hilton is a brain surgeon, neurosurgeon from Texas. And he not only does things that brain surgeons do, which is way above my pay grade, but he also speaks nationally and internationally about the harmful effects of pornography on individuals and on society. And he is on the front lines of this fight and publishes on this topic, has written a book, and gets invited to speak all over, including to the Vatican. It's a real honor to have Dr. Hilton on the podcast today. And I'll put more information about him in the show notes, so you can look for all of that there, plus a link to where you can buy his book and learn more about some of his research. He's featured in all kinds of great things. Fight the New Drug has put him in a lot of their videos. He's got tons of YouTube videos. Dr. Hilton is out there on the front line speaking and helping us recognize the harmful effects and also looking at trends and what things are coming down the pike so that we can be prepared and understand how this will affect us long-term. Let's jump into my interview with Dr. Don Hilton. Well, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, uh, Dr. Hilton. Thank you so much for making time for us today. It's my pleasure, Jeff. It's good to be with you. All right. Well, today we're going to talk about this idea that I think is prevalent in the mental health field, certainly, and culturally, but I think also in, in the church to a degree a little bit, right? This idea that is, is pornography really addictive? Is this really something that we should be calling an addiction? Are we just overreacting? I, I'd love to hear your response to that just initial question, and then we'll just dive right into the, the evidence here. Yeah, I, I think everything that you have just said is, is accurate. I think that um, there's a, a reticence to, to use the word addiction and certainly to apply it to um, at least most pornography use as, uh, as, it's, uh, as it's happening today. I think, first of all, just stepping back and, and defining the word addiction. You know, people will say, well, it's, it is or isn't something. Well, what is the word that they're going to either affirm or deny? What is addiction? So if we're going to decide whether or not pornography use is or can be addictive, at least we should have some framework of what the threshold of addiction is. Um, you know, at what point does compulsive and harmful use become addiction? And there's really no no clear threshold for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with even even many substance abuse problems, much less behavioral addictions such as gambling or food or sexual addictions, which include uh, pornography use today. So, I like to simply uh, define addiction as uh, continued engagement in a self-destructive behavior despite adverse consequence and despite multiple attempts to stop the behavior. I like the American Society of Addiction Medicine's definition 
that addiction is a chronic disease of the brain affecting reward, motivation, and memory systems in the brain. I know some will uh, push back at the disease label for addiction. People like Mark Lewis, who I, I really like his work, mm -hmm. uh, his book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, I, I think is an excellent description of how the neuroscience of addiction merges with the behavioral aspects of addiction. I do disagree with him uh, with regard to the use of the word uh, disease, though. As a medical doctor, we uh, in the medical field use the word disease to describe a pathologic process, a process that departs from the normal, either hmm. physical or mental normal. Right. Basis. So physical disease would be anything that departs from that perfect physical health and mental disease, anything that departs from, from perfect mental health and does, and addiction, I believe is, uh, is diseased learning. It's, it's a, um, abnormal, uh, learning with regard to the brain's reward center. So it's, um, Cowher and Malinka defined it as a powerful but pathological form of learning and memory. So I think, um, in, in my opinion, that is what addiction is. It's, it's a diseased form of learning that, um, of, of reward. Learning. Um, I think there's this reticence to use the word because we don't want to, to shame people. Yeah. Um, I think that in my opinion, um, it, it actually works the other way. Um, someone that, that is using uh, pornography uh, in a compulsive way and that I might use the term addiction. Um, let's just take an example. Let's say their spouse questions them, why won't you stop? Well, if there's uh, an addictive component to it, perhaps they would understand better that this, like a cocaine or an alcohol addiction, would require um, an extra measure of, of effort and understanding. Whereas if they look at a behavioral addiction like pornography or sexual addiction in the same way, perhaps they will give the same effort to overcoming it. Um, and so I think um, also the spouse may say, well, if you're not addicted, that means you don't love me enough. You just won't quit. Right. You must like this more than me. So you don't have a, any kind of brain problem or problem with your reward system like alcohol or cocaine. You just don't like me enough. So I think actually the shaming can go both ways. And so I don't really buy that that um, common, um, you know, this this common thought that we hear that that using the word addiction shames people. I, I just I find that it can that can go both ways. Yeah, and I, it's been my experience that people that recognize that they're in an unmanageable situation um, don't seem to, you know, once they own that and they're humble about it and they're they're honest about it, it, they don't really get hung up on the labels. It's been my experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you talk about the reward? You keep mentioning the reward system. I think a lot of people wonder, and I run into this a lot in my practice, a lot of people wonder, what exactly is going on in the brain? I mean, you're a brain surgeon, you study the brain, you, you're an expert in this area. 
And you've obviously taken a, an academic interest as well in what happens to the brain with addiction. And so can you describe what exactly is going on and specifically why pornography is so powerful to our brains? Sure, Jeff. I, I, simplistically, we have this primitive part of our brain called the brainstem, and it's really concerned with basic drives that regulate our vital functions, heart rate, breathing, um, eating, hunger, thirst, desire. It's not a thinking part of the brain. It really just wants, it drives uh, homeostasis, it drives desire. Um, and then we have our cortex, which is this frontal part of our brain, and it's actually the cortex coats coats our brain really uh, under under the skull the cerebral cortex goes all the way from the back of the head all the way to the front of the head over the over the eyebrows and particularly this frontal area is concerned with judgment with control with executive decision making with um kind of con- context and then kind of so if you if, I, if my brain is say if you, if you look at a, a cross section down here in the brain stem, in this bottom part of the brain, um, you have dopamine, which is a, an excitatory neurotransmitter that really drives desire. It powers the brain with desire. And it's sending wires, axons or wires to this reward center kind of in the center down in here. And then you have this frontal cortex in the front sending wires down to the reward center with judgment and context. So you have judgment and context coming into the reward center, and you have dopamine uh, coming in from the brainstem, from the ventral tegmental area of the brainstem. And so you have this reward center really um, almost, uh, say, caught in the middle or being balanced uh-huh. by this, this drive to do it. If it feels good, do it. Don't really think about it. Um, and then you have this judgment reward center saying, well, pleasure's great. But should we contextualize it? Should we think about it? Is eating three chocolate cakes before breakfast every day, it tastes good, but is it a good idea? Are there consequences that we should consider? So that judgment area helps us weigh our pleasure and contextualize our pleasure so that it can have meaning and context and actually uh, be a garnish that rewards us in life instead of becoming, as an addictive pleasures can become, a master that dominates us. And really in addiction, what happens is that balance becomes skewed and it becomes a dopamine drive, which is really not balanced well by this frontal control executive center. And there's actually impairment in many addictive behaviors, whether they're to a substance or to a behavior, where this frontal control area, there's some interesting studies that have been done with several addictions both with substance addictions and behavioral addictions, where something measuring frontal connectivity um, has been noted. In other words, the ability of this frontal area to connect with the reward system, this connectivity, is impaired in, in addiction. Interestingly, there have been a couple of studies done looking at people using pornography compulsively and these areas have been impaired. They've shown frontal connectivity issues and impairment 
similar to that seen with substance addictions. One study came out of Cambridge University in England. Another one came out of the Max Planck Institute in Germany and was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And so these are two secular studies out of Europe that have shown impairment and frontal connectivity with heavy porn use, similar to that seen with substance addiction. And um, I think that's significant. Um, it's that data and other data like it, and going back to the, the molecular um, neuroscience data, delta phosphate and other um, chemicals that are important in the reward system of the brain that caused ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, to include both substance addictions and uh, behavioral addictions under the same umbrella of addiction. And that data has only become stronger to the point where, uh, you know, Mark Potenza, Valerie Vinn, Mark Potenza at Yale, Valerie Vinn at Cambridge and others um, wrote um, a letter in Lancet, the medical journal, and felt that, yeah, that, that compulsive pornography use does meet the, um, the threshold for a behavioral addiction, at least as much as, as gambling uh, right. does. Gambling, of course, has been accepted by the DSM-5, and um, in the IC, um, ICD-11, the pornography was just, or sexual uh, addiction and compulsive uh, pornography use has been included in a impulse con- as an impulse control disorder, not as a sec- as a as an addictive behavior as gambling has. But I will point out that the DSM originally uh, has uh, included um, gambling as an impulse control disorder before it was moved to addictive to the addictive level. Dr. Potenza, Dr. Voon, and others um, recently wrote another paper uh, suggesting that that it's more accurate for the ICD-11 to include compulsive sexual behavior or pornography um, use as as an addiction uh, as well, rather than impulse control disorder, because the data is as robust for pornography as it is. For, for gambling, at least. I think it's stronger myself. Yeah. So the data is really, I think, it's it's really not an issue of is the data there for it? It's really a political issue. I mean, we were, we didn't see this fight with gambling. We didn't <laughs> right. see right. everyone came out and say, no, gambling is not, you know, I mean, you know, online poker all night long and you lose your job, you're addicted. Online porn all night and you lose your job, you're not addicted. Really? I yeah. Mean, what, is we, we, what is that? What is that? Why? Didn't, we didn't see that fight. And it's because really pornography is such an endemic part of not just American culture, but worldwide culture now. And everyone, I mean everyone, but I mean everyone, so to speak, culturally is, is using. And um, and so there's, and, and the industry part, we can't forget the industry part of yeah. this. The powerful industry. Right. I mean, look at, you know, MindGeek. Most people have never heard of MindGeek. They don't know what MindGeek is. And it's one of the largest monopolies. And 
some of the researchers that are most supportive of of pornography and who fight the addiction label um, the strongest. People like, say, David Lay or, or Nicole Prouse, who are frequently quoted um, as um, supporting uh, pornography and supporting the industry. They have close cultural uh, ties to the industry, and that's really not vetted in a lot of the science and a lot of the lay publications that come out that quote them as supporting pornography and as fighting an addictive label for pornography. I mean, David Lay's paper, ethical uh, use or something ethical, um, ethical porn use for men, something to that effect, uh, a man's guide to viewing pleasure. He, he just wrote a book that was endorsed by Pornhub, which is owned by MindGeek. And yet, when he's quoted as being a non-biased researcher that opposes an addictive model for pornography, that doesn't come up that he's been endorsed by Pornhub, which is owned by MindGeek, which is a large industry. It'd be kind of like, you know, having um, a professor that, that hangs out with the president of, of the tobacco uh, industry um, tell you that tobacco's fine. But trust me, it really is. Right, right. And yet they're best friends and they hang out. Um, Nicole Prouse, for instance, and these are on their sites. I'm not, they're proud of this. They put it on their sites. Uh, attends the Adult Video News Awards every year and poses with uh, performers and producers on the red carpet at AVN every year. So I just, they say that anyone that opposes pornography is biased, either from a religious or moralistic view, yet they don't feel that they're biased, even though they um, have very close cultural ties with the industry. Right. Right. Yes, we need to look at both. Yeah, exactly. So when, when you're wondering, if you're sitting here listening to this wondering, um, where you know where does this debate come from? You know there are there are very much two sides at war here with this, and both sides, um, you know, I guess what you're saying essentially is that these experts that are coming out and saying there's no evidence of it have a conflict of interest big time. Yeah. yeah. Well, they do. As, as I just pointed out, they do. Um, and pornography has has changed. It's much more. Kind of a related topic is this um, this this growing tendency, not just uh, in society but in, in, in religions, specifically in the in the um, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints as well, but not unique though in other religions as well. This tendency to um, to try to look at pornography as shame based only. In other words. The reason that it's bad is that there's a moralistic impetus to stop, and if you don't, <clears throat> then it's religious shame yeah. that drives uh, these negative feelings. And that's a, growing, that's a growing tendency to think that. Yes. Um, it, it's a problem for several perspectives. We could go on and on, but I know that Noah Church and... Um, and Gary Wilson and some of my atheist friends who feel that pornography is very harmful to them as humans, they're atheists, they're agnostics, and, and they, um, they get really upset when people try to tell them that it's a moral issue from a religious perspective because they're not religious. Right. They feel that it harms their ability, uh, ability of anyone that, that is using to connect emotionally with other humans. And so they look at it 
from a more humanistic perspective in terms of the harm that is done. Gary, uh, or um, Chris Hedges wrote a book called Empire of Illusion. In that book, he quotes Robert Jensen, who's a professor of of journalism at University of Texas at Austin. And Bob Jensen, in, in uh, in this book, talks about the the increasing misogyny of pornography today. And he says that basically um, men are enjoying more. And of course it's increasing with women. We know women's use is increasing, but said particularly men are enjoying watching women be uh, dominated, aggressed upon sexually. And he said, and many men, perhaps the majority of men like it. And I think that's, that's very shaming to a person inside to know that, that they like that that they buy that, that that's part of their sexual identity core, part of their arousal template, is to enjoy watching women being controlled and dominated and that they enjoy that. And I think that's terribly shaming to a person to know that they like that. Yeah. It's part of their template. And so, of course, we need to be very careful with um, how we interact and talk about people that struggle with pornography in no way to not be accepting and to, to help them feel that they have a safe place to come and find healing. But the other side, there, there was recently a, um, there was an article actually in LDS Living. I'll just put it out there. And, <laughs> and one of the premises in the article in LDS Living, it said, this person that wrote the article said, the shame is worse than the porn. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And, and I, it was very juvenile to me on, on several uh, fronts. Number one, why are we stratifying here? Shame is bad. Shame has defined meaning, and, and of course, shame and guilt. Shame, I am bad. Guilt, I have done something bad, right? So if shame is defined as a person thinking they're inherently bad, yes, shame is harmful. Shame is bad by that definition. So it why do we have to stratify and say, well, well, shame is worse than porn. Shame is bad and porn is bad. They're both bad. Let's just leave it at that and say we, we don't want really to, to go to either place. But people, I think, don't understand, Jeff, what is happening with pornography. We go to Anna Bridges' <clears throat> excuse me, work on content of the most popular videos. There's a recent study that just came out. Uh, looking at content as well. I, I just read it last week. Um, looking at Pornhub, which is the top site owned by MindGeek, and looking at at um, at their content. There's Chen Sun out of NYU's work. There's Gail Dine's work in Pornland, and this is, is um, you know 88 percent aggression towards women in Bridges' work and up to 40% in this recent study, but it's basically aggression. It's anger, it's domination, it's hardcore sexuality, and it's basically a very intense sexual intercourse experience now, as opposed to pornography of 40 years ago when um, most young men at scout camp may have someone come show them a photograph, and that was pornography. Now it's, it's digital, interactive pornography. I usually don't use the term struggling with pornography when people um, try to describe this. I, I think that it's a euphemism now. I, I think pornography participation is a better term. And I, that's the term that I try to use is 
participation in pornography. It's a very integrative digital experience now that huh. evokes the mirror neuron systems of the brain. If like there's an back, engagement there instead of it just being a passive struggle. An intense engagement to the point where more and more, especially men, um, are preferring the pornography participation experience to sexual relations with an actual human being. And that's, that's increasing now or right. becoming dependent on pornography um, to avoid impotence. And so the brain's mirror neuron systems, which project us into what we're watching, it was, of course, originally found with primates. That Moreau study out of Paris published in Neuroimage found that, yes, pornography does powerfully project the person into the film that they are watching, where they become participatory. So now with this multiple sexual penetration kind of heavy sexual experience that pornography has become, it's really a very intense digital sexual experience that's happening. It's not looking at porn. It's not struggling with porn. It's, we need to call it what it is so we can understand it better to deal with it. Now with VR porn becoming, I think, the future quickly, that will accelerate it more, um, where the person won't even have, let's say, a male person watching or sorry, participating there won't even be a male in the film. The female he will be interacting with in a VR headset directly as if he is the male performer. And that's, that's becoming much more, more common, and it is the future. Um, and so those brains, the, the brain's mirror neuron systems will be uh, more powerfully involved with that. MindGeek, I think, had... 20 million downloads last year and they're actually investing in VR now because I think everyone recognizes that is the future. So will this increasingly integrative participatory experience affect addiction? Absolutely. Even more so than the powerful experience it already is. Right. So, I mean, this is so this is so fascinating because so many of the arguments I've heard from people, and a lot of them are older people, but it doesn't really matter. A lot of them are, are really talking about comparing today's pornography, like you said, this integrative type digital pornography, to more of a static, passive, you know, page out of a magazine of yesteryear. And they're just night and day. They're not even the same. The brain doesn't respond to them the same as what you're saying. Absolutely not. It's a it's a new world. Uh, we're we're so far beyond that. I think um, I think many well-meaning uh, ecclesiastical leaders uh, of different faiths are beginning to recognize that we're dealing with a new creature here. And I've had the opportunity to to come to know some some fantastic people, both secular people working with this on looking at legislative agendas. To different religious perspectives, I was invited to the Vatican last year. Um, Pope Francis sponsored a, a, a forum at the Gregorian Pontifical University, and I spoke at that and got to meet Pope Francis. Um, James Dobson, uh, who founded Focus on the Family and um, and, run, and does Family Talk now, um, invited me to speak in Colorado Springs um, last month. And, I've been honored to participate in several uh, summits with uh, Josh McDowell, um, and we're going to Singapore actually next year to do a 
combined secular uh, event and, and also a religious event with Christians, Muslims, and others there. So this is being recognized, right. I think, broadly. Right. But I think what's happening, say, in the, I was going to say LDS religion, but I'm going to say in the, the church, <laughs> uh, meaning the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, is what we're hearing increasingly. A lot of people, because Jan and I work in this space and know people, and we hear a lot of these stories, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, a well-meaning bishop, say this is a good example, will say, well, you struggled with pornography. There's not really a lot of, of talk about what happened. What is? What did you do? What? And I can understand that. It's a tough subject. I mean, <laughs> getting into specifics about what was seen is a difficult thing for a lay, lay bishop to talk about with someone. So I'm not being critical here. I'm just saying this is the nature of the problem. So what's happening uh, with boots on the ground is, well, you need the temple. So what we see are a lot of people that are are struggling. Um, when I say struggle, are participating in this very integrative sexual experience, mm-hmm. and then going to the temple one to two, three weeks later, with the bishop's blessing, thinking, "Well, it's not that big a deal. As long as I keep it to just porn, then it's really okay. It's a hand slap, even if it's a very intense digital sexual intercourse experience." it's still temple-worthy after maybe a week or two off the sacrament. That's happening more and more now. And so I think that's a problem is we risk this behavior coming becoming endemic in, in our people and in our culture. I think, yeah, no, unfortunately, I, I think that's happening. I see that, yep, I hear and see the same thing. Are you saying from a brain perspective and a body perspective that because it's so integrative, because it's 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 not passive, that in a way the experience that these we'll just say men, for example, are having with this, the the brain is in some ways tricked into believing that they're having an actual sexual experience. What there was you- a experiment. Yes, exactly. There was an experiment done a number of years ago. Um, it's uh, two, two monkeys were eating peanuts, and and they had probes in the. This is a simplistic description, but they had probes in the brain. And the monkey that was eating the peanuts had this probe in the brain. The other monkey was watching his friend eat the peanuts, had a bulb, no peanuts, had a probe in the brain in the same place. Well, the monkey that was watching, his brain was firing in the same way that the peanut-eating monkey's brain was firing. Huh. In other words, he was projecting himself. Wow. It's called mirror neuron system. And as I said, there was a functional MRI study with individuals looking at pornography in France that showed that those mirror neuron systems in humans are powerfully evoked as well with pornography. So literally our brains put us in that experience. It's a powerful projection. And with VR porn now and the masturbation devices that are being made, particularly in Japan, where performers are filmed having sexual relations haptically with haptic technology, kind of like Gollum was filmed in Lord of the Rings, Anthony Serkis, the actor, and then they transpose Gollum where he was. Uh-huh. So that's happening now with pornography performers. So now the the males, and I'm sure they'll do it for females, but the males will have an experience where they're having a sexual intercourse experience with a performer with a masturbation device attached to their genitals moving in concert with the filmed female. So you're talking about a powerful sexual intercourse, ex- digital sexual intercourse experience, but it's not an actual human. So what the, what's happening is I think a lot of priesthood leaders not understanding that. I'll say, well, it's not that big a deal. You didn't actually touch a person. So just hold off the sacrament for a week. You need the temple. I want you to go to the temple next week. 
that's happening more and more. And yet what's happening in their brain and their mind and their heart is identical to a very powerful uh, sexual intercourse experience. So we got to really slow that down, don't we, to, to help that person understand what's happening to their spirit, to their body, to their mind, to their relationships, because this whole dismissing it as not a real sexual experience is just not true. It's not, and they learn their templates change. People think, well, your templates can't change. Templates with regard to their hunger, desire for, for control, for aggression, those templates do change. I mean, if we remember the cadaver experiments with rats, they took, took a male rat and they put in a piece of wood in this cage. The wood was soaked with cadaverine. Cadaverine is what makes dead things smell. And, and even rats hate cadaverine. If you put the uh, wood in a, in a cage with a rat, he'll run to the other side of the cage. And that's what these male rats did. They tried to get away from this, this cadaverine-soaked wood. Mm-hmm. So then they kind of, second part of the experiment, soaked some females receptive, sexually receptive females fur with cadavering and put these females in the cage with the males. And the males initially ran to the other side to get away from the smell, but the sexual attraction overcame it. And finally they mated with these cadavering soaked females. And in the end, when they would smell cadavering, they would run to the female because they knew that meant sex. And of course they completed the experiment by going back and putting the original cadaverine soaked wood with the now sexually cadaverine scripted male and instead of running the males would run over and start to chew the wood oh my goodness and so it just shows i think what happened sexuality is a powerful teacher as we the context in which we experience sexual pleasure is a powerful teaching substrate for the brain it imprints our brains powerfully it literally builds new brain wires between different areas of our brains so that we become different. Recovery is a reversal of that. Yes. It's learning to value human connection, to value love again. And, of course, it's real. Recovery is powerful, but just as addiction is a learning process, so is recovery. Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, this is – I'm guessing for you this is this is a big part of why – you know, so many, so many people that struggle with this, that are interacting with pornography, that are that are giving up so much. I mean, you look at it and you think, why, why would the rat run, you know, run back toward this wood? Why would he run toward a, a you know, a stench-soaked female? But a lot of times, what wives and bishops and other people will ask the same question: Why, why can't he just stop? Why won't he? Why would he give up his job? Why won't he uh, be there for his wife or his family? Why? These kinds of things. But you're saying that the sexuality is such a powerful motivator and the way that pornography hooks people into that, it really just it really just compromises their ability to, to choose. It does, Jeff. And it, it's interesting to me that we have no trouble saying, well, why don't you just stop alcohol for someone that's an alcoholic? Just stop. Right, I mean, right. It ruins your life. Um, I had one recently that, uh, you know, that I had to operate on for, for had a terrible spine infection from cheating up heroin and it's like well this is destroying your life it's paralyzing you and yet they won't stop or they can't stop at least in their present frame of mind Mm -hmm. without recovery and we have no trouble saying that person is addicted to drugs okay i get that they need help they need real help but with pornography we tend to say well that's not cocaine that's not alcohol 
So they should be able to, to just do it on their own, just white knuckle it. And we don't realize that the reward system is driven by the same cravings and urges. I was uh, honored to be part of a group a number of years ago where um, we did an experiment. It was out of Duke University, University of Melbourne. Um, and we looked at what causes an animal to crave the most basic of natural cravings, and that's salt. Salt is a very powerful craving for animals that are depleted. And so we looked at a rodent model, and we found that when these rodents were depleted from salt, with salt, and then you repleted them, and looked at which DNA transcripts were, were evoked, were, were mobilized, and which chemicals those DNA transcripts produced to drive desire, lo and behold, it was the same DNA transcripts that were evoked with this natural craving for salt were also evoked with addiction craving for, say, cocaine. That had never been shown. So there's really this, this concept of what is, what is craving and how can craving control us instead of serve us goes back to the very essence of what addiction is. And to fail to understand that two things. Number one, pornography can be a very powerful, powerful addiction. Uh, as much or more so than many substance addictions. And number two, that it's much more common addiction, particularly with the technology driving it and the naivety of particularly young male brains and increasingly female brains using. We've failed to understand the power of that compulsion and and how widespread it is. And, you know, 14-year-old Johnny that's seeing the kind of material that Dines Young and others describe to, to think that they're not quickly addicted, that it's a quick hook, is very naive of us. And I think in doing so, we risk, um, we risk treating a cold, uh, pneumonia as if it's just a cold. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. And how does the brain, I know earlier in our interview here, you talked about how the, the brain stem, right, the, the, the kind of primitive part of our brain, and then we've got the frontal cortex, which is the more uh, thoughtful and, and self-aware part of our brain. Is you said that there's a center part of our brain that that you know those two places sort of meet there and they get out of balance, right? A very simplistic explanation. I'm clearly not a brain surgeon, but but what, I'm just curious: how does that get out of balance? How how does one start to win over the other back and forth? And 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 in addiction, obviously, the front the front of the brain loses, right? So like. How, how does that imbalance start to happen? Well, the brake pads wear out, so to speak. Uh, the dopamine system becomes overweighted. And uh, Nora Volkow, who is the president, of the, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, had a really good diagram on that mm -hmm. in one of her papers that shows that really it becomes salience or drive becomes more driven by desire, by a brainstem, than it does controlled by the frontal area. And okay. so um, there's a scripture that I like, actually, that describes that in Second Nephi. I think it's around 25, towards the end of that chapter. And in it, um, it, it describes that, to me, that neurological process. He says, uh, Lehi's talking, and he says something to the effect that, that the will of the flesh and the evil which is therein. So in other words we can have 
will, which is good, but when will of the flesh, which to me is the brainstem, it's just basic drive, becomes our will, becomes when, when that wins and we don't really have any cognitive overlay, any waiting, any judgment, we just do it because it feels good. That's where it becomes evil. I think because it's ultimately completely selfish. It becomes about us and no one else. And so I think brainstem sexuality um, is really what pornography is about. The other thing I think that's fascinating is to look at the parallels between us today and ancient Israel, we tend to think that they worship Jehovah, and and, and, um, and yet, actually, they did at times, but if we, you read Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were constantly harping on these ancient Israelites to not worship Baal and Astaroth. When they talk about the green trees and the groves, those were called Astaroth poles, and they were frequently set up next to the Baal altars. So it was a fertility thing. They wanted, you know, fertile crops. Well, what would happen is there would be a star of prostitutes. And so frequently the, the Canaanite farmers would have sexual relations with them. It was really an excuse to have sexual relations, but they put a fertility angle to it. <laughs> but it became part of their culture. And so if they didn't have a tree next to a Baal altar, they would put up a pole that was sometimes a feminine shape. It was kind of a phallic symbol, but it was basically called an asteric pole. And then they would have sexual relations by those poles. What's interesting is there's been several asteric poles that morphed and had Yava on one side, and Yava replaced Baal as the, as the masculine figure. And then they had a asteric on the other side. So they literally combined the worship of Yava, of the one true God, with asteric, which was the immorality of the time. It's fascinating to me because, in a way, I think our, culturally we almost do that today. We literally have the asteric poles with iPhones everywhere, and, and that becomes almost another way to worship virtually ubiquitous asteric everywhere, or sexual, uh, unbridled sexuality everywhere. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Really just the double mind. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy or the great comparison. I've never thought of it that way before. That's really good. So do, do, you're talking about dopamine just basically wins when somebody yeah. becomes addicted. So there is that just through exposure? Is that really what it is? It's just it, there's it's just enough exposure. And I get I get what you're saying. It doesn't take as much these days because it's so immersive. But it's just the dopamine hits are so strong that the front just can't break enough to like keep it from going off the rails, right? Well, it's a rewiring process, too, and mm-hmm. it reinforces, it rewires itself. Neuroplasticity, it's like uh, Zatori said in the, in the early violin studies about how the brain is neuroplastic with any kind of learning. That the brain, literally, behavior sculpts the brain. The brain is the source of behavior, but in turn is actually sculpted by the behaviors it produces. Learning sculpts brain structure, he said, and I think that's extremely accurate. I think that um, we rewire ourselves and in, in the sense that the only connections that become important to our rewired selves are connections that make us feel, and I mean in a sensation way, uh, feel, uh, a hit, a thrill, and that becomes important, and nothing else really compares. Right. 
how do you how do you tell twelve year old Johnny who's been watching hardcore with multiple penetration sexual intercourse participating in masturbation what do you give him in comparison with that to to trade to say no this is better don't don't do that there's a better way to live this is a better reward uh, pray feel something spiritual in your life that's better than this amazing incredible physical sensation that you just had it's really difficult. It's difficult to compete. Yeah, it's like taking away the ice cream cone and handing them a piece of celery and saying, this is better for you. Precisely, Jeff. That's yeah. exactly right. It's a hard sell. And the brain's not going to buy it, right? <laughs> the brain's not going to buy it, and neither does 12-year-old Johnny. Yeah. Increasingly Sally. Yeah, exactly. So how do, how do people's brains heal then with this? I mean, if you're rewiring the brain, which is neuroplasticity, I'm guessing it can reverse. I've seen it in my own practice, but from a from a again a medical from brain perspective, how does the brain heal? How do you heal a, re, a rewired brain like that? Well, it's learning, and that's what when people have a, a multifaceted approach to a recovery process, whether it's to a substance like alcohol or cocaine, or to an addictive behavior like gambling, like food overeating, or as we're talking today about sexual addiction, and specifically uh, pornography, then it's a relearning. It's a rewiring, and it's a, I think, resetting of that pleasure thermostat um, of, of the brain. It's, 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 I think, coming back to homeostasis, where things that should be important to us are important again, and things that are hurting, harming us, it's an awareness process where we realize that, no, actually, I thought that felt good, but it didn't. It it caused harm. You know, this young woman that I treated recently that was paralyzed from heroin because it infected her spine, um, the heroin felt really, really good when she would shoot up. She had no idea that the germs were going to her spine and paralyzing her. That did not feel good. But it's hard to link the two because the reward of the heroin at the time is so powerful. Yeah. And it's hard to tell someone when they're experiencing, particularly today's integrative participatory pornography, um, that that's really harm hurting you when it feels so good uh -huh. and it's so compelling and so attractive. Yeah. So, are you saying that essentially that it probably takes longer to re to unwire or rewire? Maybe is the more correct term back to a, a, a kind of a a healthy pleasure response, it takes longer to, to rewire it back than it does to actually rewire it to be dopamine uh, sort of addicted to, to that pleasure? You know, I don't think we know. We don't certainly don't have studies, longitudinal studies, where we can, can show that, particularly with pornography. The studies we have in pornography are not longitudinal at this point. There's other studies. There was a study out of Korea a number of years ago looking at recovery with methamphetamine addiction. Uh-huh. Over a period of, it was like one to two years, there was a return to more normal, um, uh, I think, uh, dopamine receptor density in, in the uh, striatum of these individu individuals that were addicted. But I think that we'll see that with any addiction, including pornography, that as we see recovery, we'll see a rewiring. What is the time course? I mean, again, it's speculative at this point. I, I like Pat Carnes talked about growth stage at two to two and a half years, and that that meth study was like one to two years where they saw changes. Yeah. I, th I think, you know, as people get one, two, three years down the road of, into strong recovery, and it's not just a behavior they're avoiding,
but a lifestyle they're choosing. And, and they really are thinking differently and they're wanting different things. Yeah, and, that and takes time. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. And it literally does rewire. It builds new microtubules from certain areas of the brain to other areas of the brain, areas that had been forgotten or rewired, and then other connections that are strong becoming less important. That is so hopeful. The thing I think that's important, though, is for a person, there's there's two ways to look at terminology. Some will say, well, it's important that a person always says, I am an addict. I'm an addict in recovery. And, you know, and that's important for some. And I would never tell anyone you should or shouldn't call yourself. If it works for them, it works for them. Yeah. I personally kind of like the template of, of someone saying something like, you know, I'm a person in a religious context. I'm a son or a daughter of God. And I have struggled with an addictive behavior or an addiction, but I am now in recovery from that. And so I, I'm thoughtful and, and careful in my life, and I do things to maintain my spiritual and emotional wholeness. To me, that's, that's a recovery attitude. So I kind of like that, personally, kind of like that um, attitude and terminology. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's really powerful. And that's good news, right? That that somebody can be mindful and aware and relearn and learn new ways of, of thinking, feeling, relating to others, and that the brain will respond in turn and, and reinforce that. Like you said, it becomes an upward positive cycle. Exactly. And it does take time. It's uh, I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, not all who enter or, or struggle with wrong roads uh, perish. And of course, you could use addiction for that. He said, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. And then he says, a wrong sum can be made right, but only by going back to the place of the error and working it afresh from that point, not simply by going on. And he said, time alone does not heal it. And then he said something I think very important. He said, the spell must be unwound. Mm. Bit by bit, backward mutters of dissevering power else not. And so that that unwinding the spell, I think, is where therapist, a, a skilled therapist, it can help the person go back and look at family issues that that evolve their self esteem, involve their self formation of their self esteem, at you know childhood associations, friendships, exposures, experiences, all that those myriad con, uh, those myriad um, components that form the construct of their core, that form eventually their templates, their arousal templates, all of those things that a skilled therapist can help them work through perhaps a 12-step group meeting of some kind where other individuals at different places on that journey can bond with them and share from their experience what worked for them. Uh, group therapy, where a therapist can help in a group session. There's just so many different angles and, and ways that a person can seek help. And of course, you know, then there's the, uh, then there's the, the Alma experience and the Paul experience. There's those few individuals that who knows why, but it's just one day there and it's one day it's not. And there's just a, a change. And they're, they're given a gift and maybe they're ready for it. And there's a few people like that. And I think it's beautiful when they reach out then and, and live a step 12 and try to help others uh, with, with service. Yeah, that's so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this is why I think it's so dangerous, like you were saying earlier, where well-meaning people – uh, church leaders, family members, loved ones, even even people that are battling this themselves, really minimize the impact it's had on them. I mean, to unwind a spell, as you put it, it's not something that's going to happen in three weeks. You know, the, the the finish line, if there is one, even 
is not going to be as you know it's not going to be as as close as maybe people would like it to be. It's it's a process. It's a journey, rewiring the brain, changing attitudes, beliefs, lifestyle changes. It just takes a lot of time and patience, and people just need to settle in for the journey. Yeah, and eventually enjoy the journey. I mean, as they say, at I first, the journey is painful, right? It's yep. like people say, well, people don't seek recovery until the pain of the problem is worse than the pain of the solution. But eventually, um, living a life in recovery, living a life of reconnection, of wanting things that actually help you instead of hurt you, is actually much more pleasurable and enjoyable than acting out an addiction. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, when I have people that say things to me like, I just want to feel normal, right? I just want to, I just feel like I have to keep going to these meetings and reading these books and I just want to be like everybody else. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what they're really working toward, which you said exactly is, is a life of, of peace, is a life of intentionality and connection, which is so not present in addiction. Yeah, it's a change of focus really yeah. away from them saying, I want to feel normal. I want to, how can I help other people? How can I help other people experience the joy that I feel, the peace that I feel? It's not about me anymore. It's about, I can't relax and, and know that other people are hurting and not share this miracle, yeah. this great peace that I have with them and give them hope. And to me, that's really true recovery is when the person is absolutely compelled to reach out out of sheer joy. I've got to help other people yeah. feel this well, I love that. That's beautiful. So, Dr. Hilton, you wrote a book called He Restoreth My Soul, which came out, what, more than 10 years ago, right? Something like that. I mean, not quite, I think not quite, but close. Yeah, it's know. been out a long time. Yeah. Do you have any other any other publications that are for the, the public? I know you do a lot of uh, research and other types of papers like that, but do you have any other, other books like that one that are that people can read? I don't. Um, I I do a fair amount of writing in, in peer-reviewed journals, and I, I just wrote a chapter in a medical textbook for psychiatric uh, medical residents um, on the neurobiology of addiction. So I'm doing that kind of writing right now. Um, I haven't done any, another one. I've had that question asked, and <laughs> at some point I might uh, I might do some more writing because it has been ten years. The science in the book, the premise that the brain changes the chapter six of that book is still the same. Interestingly, um, we didn't have any studies showing physical brain change with pornography or metabolic changes when the book came out, but I predicted that we would see that someday. And now we have seen those things that were predicted in the book, but the spiritual aspects of the book, I don't think have changed. They're just spiritual principles that I think are, in my opinion, are true then. And now, um, I think it might be helpful at some point since, we have so much new science that has validated our original concepts in the book. It might be helpful someday, someday to do something like that. But yeah, that makes sense. No, the book is still very relevant. Uh, a lot of the people I work with still read it, love it. It's been a great support, a blessing to, to so many people. And so um, – and and yeah, I, I, I just did a I, I just Googled your name actually and uh, just in preparation for this uh, interview – and I was amazed at the amount of YouTube videos and articles and other things. You're, you know, you've put a lot of great content out there and spoken very clearly about this issue uh, for years. And so, uh, for all of my listeners, if you want to read and listen and learn more from Dr. Hilton, it's just a, a Google search away. He's uh, he's got plenty of content out there. In addition to his book, He Restoreth My Soul. 
So, Dr. Hilton, thank you so much. I will uh, definitely have you back in the future, we'll, and we'll cover some other topic and, and uh, offer support and education to, to our listeners. I'll look forward to it, Jeff. It's good to be with you today. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to grab a copy of Dr. Hilton's book called He Restoreth My Soul, Understanding and Breaking the Chemical and Spiritual Chains of Pornography Addiction Through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. You can pick this book up at Deseret Book. You can also grab it on Amazon and probably other places books are sold. It's a fabulous book. It has all the brain science in it and also has a lot of recovery stories. Dr. Hilton and his wife are very involved in the 12-step movement and also helping uh, lead and guide and organize lots of other recovery efforts. And they are just doing such a tremendous work. I want to thank Dr. Hilton once more for taking time out of his very busy schedule to speak with us on the podcast today. In the next episode of the Illuminate podcast, I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Dean Busby from the BYU Brigham Young University School of Family Life. He's the director, and he is going to talk with us about a new book that was just published by him and several of his colleagues at Brigham Young University on how to talk to kids about sex in a healthier way. And it also includes specific sections on talking about pornography, masturbation, homosexuality, and some of these other topics that are really fragile and difficult and delicate for parents to try and talk to their kids about. So look forward to that episode. I'm really excited to share with you my interview with him. He is a fabulous speaker and researcher and just has some great ideas that I think will really help you and support you and your family. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Illuminate podcast. Please share it with your friends and family. We'd love to keep growing our listenership and spreading light. Thank you so much.